7 to 16. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but you can obviously follow along if you have your own Bible. Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Jesus. For him, sorry, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. One of the cinematic phenomenon of the last, it's got to be over a decade now almost, is the um, Marvel Cinematic Universe with the Avengers. They've just done, Infinity War is one of the big culminating pieces that draws together many of the threads from these heroes. And the Avengers is uh, kind of a good cultural stand-in as we're moving through this part of Ephesians because whether you're talking about the Justice League with, League with DC Comics, Comics or the Avengers with Marvel, there's this really interesting interplay of the themes of unity and diversity. So these superhero teams are unified in their mission to serve and protect. But the way they're unified isn't through uniformity. They come together in a common mission, but they're given different powers. And part of their process and part of their growth as individuals and as a team is to learn what those powers are, how they work together, and how they can not simply live for or use that power for their own agenda, but to serve the broader mission of the team. And yes, the Avengers, and I mean, this is comic books in general, right? Everything's hyperized, right? You have these hyper-masculinized forms, hyper-feminine forms. Um, everything is hyper-heroic, right? The powers are off the charts. It's an exaggerated picture, but in some ways, it, it's a, not a bad picture of the way that God intends to empower his people in and through the church. Um, whenever I watch any of these movies or read and reflect on them, it gets me thinking about superpowers. We have conversations all the time, maybe not all the time, but somewhat consistently around the dinner table. You know, if you could have any superpower, but only one, which would you have? And in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, what Paul's been doing is saying, God wants there to be unity in the church. But then in the verses that follow, he's saying, that unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean everybody's going to um, express their faith in the same way. And not only is that not a threat to Christian unity, it actually enhances it. And what he's going to talk about is how each Christian has been gifted with a kind of power that they're called to use to build up and strengthen the team, to help propel the mission of the church forward. There is unity, like the Avengers team, in mission within the church, but there's also a diversity 
of powers, or as Paul's going to use the language, gifts, through which we as the church come together to advance the mission of God, to bring God's loving, restoring, redemptive rule to bear in the lives of individuals. Notice verse 7. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. A few things to notice there. Paul will sometimes, and this is, sometimes, this is why it's confusing at times to read Paul, he will use grace, the word grace, in two different ways. The first way he will use grace is in reference to God's grace towards us, unmerited favor. We've just been the recipients of something, not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious. He does this in Ephesians 2. It's by grace you have been saved. But then here, and also in 1 Peter 4.10, grace is sometimes used in the New Testament to reference a particular um, ministry that a person has been given. We might use the language of calling. There's a general call to follow Jesus, but maybe there's a specific call and a specific gifting and talent and skill that we've been, u- that we've been asked to serve Jesus through. So in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. So there's this link between God's grace is what we respond to in order to become Christians and to become saved, but then God also gives gifts to us so that in using those gifts, we can express God's grace in all kinds of different forms. So grace here, when, when Paul writes, but to each one grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, he's not saying, you know, God's love has been handed out and like God loves some people more than others. There's been kind of a, it's, it's not that at all. But it makes sense if you understand grace as a ministry. God loves us all. He's all saved us onto the, the Avengers, the Justice League. We're now part of the team equally before God in Christ. But our roles are different. And Christ has apportioned different ministries from his kind of sovereign perspective and from his agenda. But this is maybe the part of this verse that is the easiest to gloss over. And that is the specific language of each one of us. Paul doesn't say, the church, God has gifted the church. And letting us off the hook to say, well, yeah, some people are gifted, but like, I'm not. So like, these people that are very clearly gifted, whatever that we think that looks like, yeah, they're, they're going to be used by God, but I'm just like a regular person. Like, I'm not part of the Avengers. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, no, I'm no superhero. And the scripture says, actually, each one of us, each Christian has been given a spiritual gift, a grace by God that Jesus has chosen for that person, at least one, maybe more than one, but at least one through which we are to share and bless, uh, we're to share with others and bless other people through. What are these gifts? Okay, there's three major gift lists in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Can we put up that slide? So this is a listing of the, the, uh, the gifts or charisma in the Greek, which just means gift, um, that are listed in each of these passages. So Romans 12, There's a more extensive list in 1 Corinthians 12. Shortest list is in Ephesians 4. And then 
There's another category that depending on how you read the Bible, how you interpret it, the different Christian tradition that you might be a part of, there's another category called, we're not sure if these are gifts or miscellaneous gifts. And the reason why that's in question is because these passages in their broader context are talking about gifts and they mention certain things. And so people don't know whether those are um, hypothetical examples that aren't meant to be understood as gifts or whether they are actually examples of gifts. So, you know, I definitely lean towards saying, yeah, I think because of the context of the passages that these emerge from, uh, these are gifts that are given to some Christians through which to serve the church. Now, the scriptures, ref- uh, the scriptures that are referenced here are usually seen as definitive in terms of these are the listings of the gifts in the New Testament. But there is a question of whether are these lists comprehensive or are they examples? So the first view would, would say you see what you see is what you get. The Bible is the inspired word of God. This is what the New Testament lists as gifts. And so therefore, if it's on this list, it's a gift. If it isn't, it's not. Um, the second view would say, well, given that whenever the gifts are talked about, none of the gift lists are the same, is maybe an indication that these are examples of a broader list of gifts. And the first view is trying to really hold high the value that, you know, if there were more gifts than this, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit through the writers of the New Testament be more clear? But the second view is trying to hold out uh, a tension that says, well, given that any particular gift list isn't comprehensive, maybe... The reason why that is the case is because the Holy Spirit gifts the church in different times, maybe different cultural contexts based on different needs. And so the Bible was never, the Bible doesn't intend to give us a comprehensive list of here are, you know, 23 gifts and that's it. Um, And also, the second view is trying to, well, and I, I shouldn't say the second view. Within these views, there's some interesting discussions in terms of, okay, what do we do with things like worship? Um, is the ability to lead people in worship in a way that helps them focus on God and draw closer to God, is that a spiritual gift? Many people would say yes, right? And so the discussion between the first view, the first view might say, well, it is a spiritual gift, but it's the gift of maybe prophecy or teaching or um, exhortation uh, encouragement or helps being expressed through music, the second view would say, no, I think maybe there are just times and places where God gifts people to lead worship. And it would actually draw on some important passages in the Old Testament that talk about artistry and music as being a gift from God. So there's kinds of, you know, some discussions around, you know, how tightly bounded are these categories of gifts uh, I don't think it's tremendously fruitful to really try and go deep into that and get precise. I think what the New Testament is trying to make clear is that God, in his sovereignty, chooses to give at least one gift to each person within the church as part of his larger agenda and his larger mission. How are spiritual gifts different than a natural talent or skill? Sometimes Christians will use those terms interchangeably, Right? They'll, in one sentence, say that person's really talented, and in another, they'll say, yeah, they're so gifted. And at least in terms of how the Bible uses the word gifting, 
there's a distinction between a spiritual gift and a talent or a skill. So a spiritual gift, biblically, would be a divinely empowered, it's a divine empowerment to serve in a way that is specifically about building up the church and kind of pointing people towards Jesus and his truth and his gospel. So spiritual gifts are not something that can be earned or um, kind of taken hold of. They're, they're to be received and then cultivated and nurtured. Talents are natural abilities, certainly blessings from God. They are, many of them seem to be hereditary. They have to also, though, be learned and cultivated through conditioning from the environment. Whereas spiritual gifts are empowerment from a supernatural origin. They're not simply the result of kind of bottom-up genetics or training or conditioning like skills. So for Christians who have certain skills, that's awesome. We should use those skills to glorify God and serve our neighbor. If we have certain natural talents, that's awesome. We should use those talents to glorify God and serve our neighbor. But our spiritual gift, as we're going to come to see, is something that God has specifically given you to bless and serve the local gathering of the church so that it is strong and healthy. Now, talents and natural abilities can sometimes be the vehicle through which we use our spiritual gifts, and that's why sometimes people conflate the two, right? Someone might have a tremendous talent and skill to sing, right? But they might also have, let's use the language of spiritual gift, to lead in worship. And so when they are using that gift and talent together, it's, I don't think it's really fruitful or helpful to say, well, which are they using? Is it the skill or the talent? It's like, yes, and it's both. God is taking their natural talent, which they've worked to hone, and empowering it in a mysterious way, supernaturally, so that it affects um, the local gathering of people, of Christians, in a way that is more than simply the sum of their parts. Good music, everything's together, we got the right lighting, the voice is right, but lots of people sing songs and people's hearts don't break before God in worship. But when this person does it, there seems to be an unnatural fruitfulness, a supernatural fruitfulness that comes from them using their spiritual gift in concert with their skill. Um, one way of thinking about spiritual gifts that might be helpful, maybe not with all of the gifts, but with the vast majority of them, is it seems to be that spiritual gifts are hyper-fruitful expressions of ministry that every single Christian is called to do, right? Every single Christian is called to walk by faith and not by sight. But those with the spiritual gift of faith will show especially in times of persecution or darkness or hardship, a deeper and more authentic and, and inspiring expression of faithfulness to God when everyone else might be surrendering to doubt or discouragement. Every single Christian is called to give sacrificially as a way to advance the kingdom of God. But some people are given a spiritual gift to give far beyond what the average Christian would even feel comfortable giving. They enjoy, and their giving is especially fruitful, and some tie that to maybe they even make a lot of money. But in making a lot of money, they don't seek to simply allow lifestyle bloat to continue to expand their standard of living. They say, this is what I need, and if God keeps blessing me, I'm just going to give more and more to causes that advance um, his agenda in the world. 
every single Christian is called to serve, right? We don't say, oh, the only Christians who need to serve are those with the spiritual gift of service. No, we're all called to serve, but those with the spiritual gift of service will experience an extra measure of fruitfulness when they serve. Same with teaching, evangelism, sharing our faith with other people, hospitality. So I know that that doesn't necessarily work for all of the gifts. And, and I should say, this is kind of part one of part two. I got to spend kind of two weeks on the gifts uh, because there's lots of embedded questions here. But for this week, you know, just kind of let that roll around in your, in your head and your heart that really what a spiritual gift is, is usually someone being called to do something that every other Christian is called to do. But when they do it, the Holy Spirit, for some reason, gives them extra favor, extra blessing. The results from a kingdom perspective are greater. I've shared my faith with many people, and I try and do so in a non-threatening, warm, winsome way, but I haven't led very many people to Jesus. I've read lots of articles on the best ways to do it, and I try and understand other people's worldviews, and I read lots of books, and I try and prepare myself um, for those times where there is, people have questions about, well, what does your church believe, or what do you believe, or, but the reality is my evangelistic efforts, whatever you think of, whatever associations you have with that word, aren't very fruitful. And I've met people who, when they share their faith, from my vantage point, it seems so simple and insufficient. And the people are like, yeah, I, I totally want to become a Christian. And I'm like, wait, what? That person was just like, yeah, I go to church and I love Jesus. And then you should love Jesus too. And they're like, yeah, totally. I'm like, what? I'm doing, I'm doing all this heavy lifting and like this person is just uh, like crazy fruitful. And that's awesome. But I think those are people with the gift of evangelism. They're doing something we're all called to do, but when they do it, it's just supernaturally fruitful. And that's awesome. Now, when you look at this list, one of the questions that we're going to talk about next week is, are all of these gifts still active in the church? Because that's a big discussion point. And it has ramifications for how we organize ourselves as a church and what we're expecting in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. So is there still a gift of prophets or prophecy or speaking in tongues or uh, prophetic interpretation or apostleship? Are there still people gifted with the ability to work miracles? We'll get to that next week. Does this passage, depending on church circles that you swim in, uh, if you lean or ex are exposed to a bit more charismatic Pentecostal Christianity, Ephesians 4 especially is used as a text case to say, see, this is God's blueprint and design for the church, a five-fold ministry where apostles, evangelists, pastors, prophets, and teachers are given so that the church is built up. And from that interpretation, what uh, advocates of the five-fold ministry say is, therefore, every church should be under the authority of not just five gifts, but five offices, five formal responsibilities. Just like I'm formally a pastor, um, there should be apostles, evangelists, prophets, and teachers as part of how the local church is, is led. Now, our church doesn't believe that, and we're not structured that way, but I'm using that as an example to say, depending on where you land and how you understand this, to mean, are these gifts for today? It has big implications on how you organize yourself as a church and how you uh, live out your expression of the Christian faith. But we're going to talk about fivefold ministry and which gifts may be still active and not uh, next week. 
So I know for some of you, you're like, oh, I really wanted to hear that, but that's, we're going to have to shelve that for a little bit. What I want to get to specifically is the gifts of Ephesians 4 today. Ephesians 4.11 says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. I'm going to break down what each of those mean in their original language because sometimes those words um, are given a different uh, spin or meaning or understanding, sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not, by other people within the Christian subculture um, who are trying to figure things out or, in the worst-case scenario, trying to manipulate words and leverage titles for their own benefit. So an apostle, in its most basic form, means sent one. It's someone who is sent. It's a messenger, but it's a messenger with special authority. I'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but apostles, that word is used in all kinds of ways in the New Testament. It usually refers to someone who saw the resurrected Jesus, was given instructions by the resurrected Jesus to be a messenger, to establish churches, and to have special teaching authority as someone who was directly commissioned by Jesus. Prophets are someone in the New Testament, at least in the New Testament understanding, someone who proclaims God's utterances, someone who somehow, mechanism is never explained, can receive words of knowledge, insight into situations, maybe a particularly specific direction that a church or a Christian can take, and they can speak on God's behalf with the authority, with divine authority. So again, even there, you can begin to understand where there's going to be big tension points. Do you believe that there are people today, Christians, who can receive direct, actionable knowledge from God that is authoritative and binding for your life? Or is that speaking to something else, or was that localized to a particular time for a particular reason? Again, we'll talk about that next week. But again, you can see how there's a lot at stake in terms of how you understand these terms. An evangelist is literally a gospeler. It's someone who gospels people. The gospel being the central message that God has come to rescue us in Jesus by coming and live the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, then resurrecting and ascending and inviting people into a renewal movement to restore all things uh, first beginning by, through a restored relationship with God, through forgiveness and reconciliation. And then the last one, and I say the last one, not the last two, because in the Greek there's no definitive article before teachers. So literally in the Greek it says pastor teachers or um, pastors who teach. There's no definitive article like there has been up to this point. Now again, there's going to be some differences of opinion, Obviously, if you are a strong proponent of the fivefold ministry, you don't want to rebrand to the fourfold ministry. So you're like, no, 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 that's just like a linguistic thing. It probably means standalone teachers. But in the Greek, biblically, it's um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Literally, a pastor who has the role of teaching people how to follow Jesus. Now, what's interesting about Ephesians 4 that, um, that isn't as clear in the other passages in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, is that in Ephesians 4, these gifts seem to be connected to offices within the church. And by office, I mean like a formal role and responsibility, right? Someone might have the gift of hospitality, but very few churches have a hospitality office. They might have a ministry of people who are doing that, organizing together, but almost every church has a formal office of pastor, 
And some churches have formal offices for the apostle of the church, the prophet of the church, the teaching pastor. So Ephesians 4 seems to be connecting these particular spiritual gifts to offices within the church. But again, more on that next week. Those are kind of a nest of issues that all have to be looked at kind of separately. What is clear and what I want to kind of make sure that we are focused on today is that Holy Spirit through Paul is making it very clear that there are certain people who the church is given to build them up. There are certain people who are given as gifts to the church to use their spiritual gifts to build up the church. Notice that all of these, whether, you know, however you define apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching pastors, they're all teaching ministries ultimately. All of them are different, at some ways, different expressions of teaching groups of people how to faithfully understand the gospel, understand the truths of God, and respond to them faithfully. And we might say an evangelist role in that is slightly different than a teaching pastor, but at their root, they're all grounded in teaching people God's truth to live faithful, holy lives that glorify God and bless and serve our neighbors so that they see our good works and they glorify God. They might say, I think what these people believe is ridiculous, but wow, our community is strengthened because of them. I'm glad for the Christians involved in my life. These people love and know how to forgive in a way that I'm interested in learning more about. What is the purpose of these people, these apostles and prophets and evangelists and teaching pastors? Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul says they're given to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So in a nutshell, we can say the purpose of the spiritual gifts is that when properly exercised, they will contribute to the overall health and growth of the church. Now, Paul is connecting specifically in Ephesians 4 these gifts with being building up gifts for the church. But in 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to expand that and say, yeah, but in equipping people, in equipping the church, as those people use their spiritual gifts, that's what their role is too. Spiritual gifts are given to the church to strengthen and grow the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So no one's spiritual gift is for themselves. And everyone's spiritual gift is meant to find expression in and through a local church. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each one of you, again, each, everyone's got at least one gift here, if you're a Christian. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. That's the purpose. You've been given a gift, you've been given a super divine power to serve other people through. And the result is, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, let's go back into verse 12 for a second. When Paul says the purpose of the gifts is to equip, he's using a word that means train or to prepare. And he says his people your translation might say God's people. Your translation might say the church. The literal in the Greek is hagion, which means the holy ones. And again, that's significant. Because remember, in his opening gambit in Ephesians, Paul starts by saying, you are no longer in Christ defined as a sinner, 
You are defined as a saint. And here he says, why did spiritual, um, why are spiritual gifts given to Christians? And the answer is not so that sinners can be turned into saints. The answer is that so that holy ones who've been made holy in Jesus can continue to grow into that true identity of who they are. Right? That's very, you know, that's not semantics. It's a very, very subtle and important distinction. We come to Jesus as a sinner. He cleanses us, forgives us, adopts us. He now gives us a new status and a new identity. Now, the moment that happens, is all the brokenness and sinfulness and selfishness in my life taken care of? No. But I start from a very different place of, well, I'm just a terrible sinner who can't do anything right, and now I'm just going to go on some kind of um, gauntlet of moral improvement to please God. No, that's not it at all. You've been adopted. You are now part of the family. You are now a son or daughter of the king. You've been given a new identity. You are a saint. You're a holy one. And now you're learning to live with greater, into greater and greater integrity between who you are as a child of God and leaving the life of who you were, your previous understanding of your identity. And Paul's saying that here. Spiritual gifts are given to the holy ones. This is for the church. Your spiritual gift might have implications for those outside the church, but your spiritual gift isn't primarily given for the broader society or culture. It's given to Christians for the strengthening and encouragement of other Christians. This is part of the reason why I would lean in the direction of it's really important for a Christian to be a part of a gathered local church community because you can't use your spiritual gifts if you've decided on kind of like, oh, it's just a me and Jesus spirituality. I don't need other Christians. I don't need the church. I understand why people go there. I'm just saying this is, a, this is one scripture that challenges you out of that. Your gift has been given to give to other Christians, not necessarily only in the context of Sunday morning and these hours, but to the church, to the Christians that Scripture assumes you're meeting with and connecting with regularly. Three-to-one groups, small groups, Christian friendships, yes, worship, Sunday school, whatever it is, whatever expression. The results of the church, oh, this is, no, this is important too. Verse 12, uh, to equip the holy ones for works of service, diaconia. That is the word from which some churches get the word deacon, and it means ministry. And that's important. These spiritual gifts are given to certain people to equip the whole church for their ministry. So if someone asks you, who's the minister at your church, what do you say? Everybody. It's not me. I'm the pastor. I have a teaching shepherding role. And part of that is to equip you to fulfill your ministry because you're a minister. That's part of the reason why within the covenant church tradition, we were very, very careful to press down honorary titles of pastor, reverend, because even subconsciously what it did is it communicated to people there's like regular Christians who just do the regular stuff and then the really important, meaningful usually up front, under the microphone, under the lights Christians, they do the real heavy lifting of ministry. That's exactly the opposite of what this passage is implying. God has gifted people like me to help strengthen you for your ministry to and among each other. 
we are all ministers. That's a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. The church is not to be understood as a hierarchy of power where some of these people with titles, and I'll talk about this next week, are at the top. It's really an inversion. Jesus says, you want to be great? Jeff, you want to be a pastor? You want to be a great pastor? And you become a slave. You become a servant. And you help other people and equip them to fulfill the ministry that I've given them, each of them. That's really, really important. We don't have one minister at this church. We are all ministers, ministering in different ways, but united together. The result is, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, right? There's a Jesus-centric movement. You'll know that, that we're growing in the faith because we're becoming more and more, we're growing in our understanding and love and knowledge of who Jesus is and the implications of his life and, and ministry. We're going to become mature. The word there in Greek means literally adult or perfect, but perfect not in a mechanical sense, but in the sense of fully mature, an organic body that has matured to its apex point attaining to the whole measure of the fullness, totality, or fulfillment of Christ. Kind of heart, soul, mind, and strength. God has given gifts to these specific people, but really to everyone, so that there's unity in the faith and so that we grow up as human beings. And that we're learning to live into the fullness of what God has for us. Not just in one area of life, but into the fullness of Christ. We are learning to forgive. We are learning to pray. We are learning how to listen well. We are learning how to serve sacrificially. We are learning how to prioritize God in our finances. We are learning how to process wounds and pains of the past and allow God to heal that. In the totality of who we are, we're allowing God to change and transform us so that we can be agents of love and grace as we invite other people into that journey. So when, we're, when they are properly exercised, spiritual gifts are going to contribute to the overall health and growth of the church. That's why they've been given. Now, I didn't address everything that could, could be said or needs to be said about spiritual gifts, um, but don't let that stop you from deciding, wherever you are in your journey as a Christian, to discover and begin using your gift to which some might say, I don't really know what my gift is. And so that's the first process, is just starting to discover it. Because every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace or a ministry has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that truth necessitates a response. You don't get to say, well, maybe I do have a gift, but it's like, like womp womp gifts like there's other cooler better gifts and all and people who've been using their gifts for, for way longer and they're super fruitful and uh, i don't know like i just i'll let them go to town and i'll just kind of sit on my hands that is not a faithful response you, you actually don't have the ability to respond in that way in terms of the, a christian understanding because we are commanded to understand and to use our gifts you're not held accountable to its fruitfulness God doesn't say, you better use this gift and it better result in these kinds of things. You're not, you're not accountable for the results. You are accountable to know your gift and to begin using it. And maybe you have more than one, but you have at least one. And you're accountable before God to use it. And this community needs you to use your gift. Because there is a way 
of serving and loving and expressing God's grace that Linda can do that I can't do, that Jean can do that I can't do, that Paul can do that I can't do, that Carrie can do that I can't do. And if what we do is for whatever reason, however well-intentioned, however humble, we say, you know what, I'm not really going to press into this. I'll let other people take the lead. You're actually stealing blessing and encouragement and strength from other Christians in your church. And that's why it's a sin. That's why I would call it a sin. I I would go that far. This church doesn't need you to be Captain America. You don't have to be a spiritual incredible Hulk. But you have a gift and you're you're called to identify it and use it. So the first thing you need to do is discover your gifts. Now again, last week I kind of threw spiritual gift inventories under the bus. They're not the be all and end all. But you can go to spiritual gift tests and fill out a free online survey that will at least maybe give you an indication. But the way you really discover your spiritual gifts is just starting by serving. You just serve. And then see what's fruitful. Talk to other people. Usually it's other people who affirm the gift in your life. Right? Be very suspicious of someone who comes along and says, I have the gift of apostleship. Well, maybe that's what you'd like to be true. That's what I say to my kids, right, when I know they're lying to me. And they say something, I'm like, oh, is that what you'd like to be true? Right? And there are some Christians that are like that. Insecure, whatever, they're trying to leverage and borrow authority from a title. Oh, I, I definitely have this spiritual gift. Maybe. But it's usually something that other people identify in you. That person has absolutely the gift of, of healing. That person absolutely has the gift of hospitality. That person is supernaturally fruitful when they work with students or children in terms of teaching ministry. Amazing. So discover your gifts. Take an online test, and that will at least give you a sense of which direction to go. But also reflect on your shape. And by shape, I mean the sum totality of how God has shaped you as a person. Shape is just an acronym that means your spiritual gift or gifts, but also your heart, what you're passionate about, your natural abilities or talents or skills. Um, not, P is not passion, sorry, that should be personality. Your personality, temperament, and your experiences, especially your experiences around suffering and hardship and loss. And the reason why I ask you to reflect on your shape is because we might have, again, I'll use the example of hospitality. We might have five people who other people in this community are going to say, I identify those people as, with a spiritual gift of hospitality. Just being in their presence, in their home, and having them listen to you and pray for you is just such a strengthening, it's amazing, it's such a blessing. But if you go to each of those different gifted persons' homes, it, th- that gift is going to get expressed in a slightly different way. And that's awesome. Because each of those people have, have a different shape. And the kind of hospitality that one might offer uh, is going to be different from another person. Right? We know this for, for teaching ministries or musical ministries. You might have the spiritual gift, but because of how God has shaped you in terms of your personality and your particular passions and your skill set and your experiences, how that gift is going to manifest is going to be different. And that's good. And so it's not just about saying, well, here's my gift and I have to use it this way. It's about saying, okay, well, here's my gift, but how has God shaped me as a person so that we're finding the right fit for how we can bless and serve each other? And I also say shape because, again, you're more than your spiritual gifts. Sometimes Christians get so obsessed with spiritual gifts, again, they take that as their fundamental identity in Christ. Very dangerous, especially if you're a pastor. 
my fundamental identity in Christ is I'm a pastor. And then you wed your spiritual identity to what might be a gift, but then if at, certain, if at a certain point you no longer have that role, you've lost something that to your identity is tectonic that really shouldn't be. You should be able to say, okay, I'm no longer a pastor as in job title, but I can still use my gift of pastoring to serve and help people. But you're more than just your spiritual gifts, and God wants to use the sum totality of your life to shape that expression. And your expression should emerge from your larger shape. Because otherwise, you're going to look at other people who have the same spiritual gift and say, oh, they can do it better. So I'm not going to use it mine in my way. And it's like, okay, but again, if we had that same principle across the church and we'd say, well, let's just figure out who the best four or five English-speaking teachers are of the Bible and we'll just pump them into every church on a Sunday morning and do away with having a live, in-person, embodied preaching experience. Because you can objectively, on certain measures, say, I can think of probably a th- you know, hundreds of people that are a more effective communicator, more fruitful pastor in terms of outward results than Jeff is, or Jason, or Jesse at Balfour. But again, God has gifted certain people to fulfill a role and to do it. And so again, we can't shrink back. We have to recognize that I've been given a gift There might be people who are more fruitful than me and more successful with it or their impact seems to be larger. You're still called to use your gift. You are not accountable for the results. You are accountable to serve and to use the gifts. And then just serve generously and widely. The other problem that Christians can get into is to say, well, I'm not spiritually gifted in that area, so that's not like for me. I don't have the gift of helps, so I don't need to help anybody. I don't have the gift of service, so serving is not my thing. Praise God, I don't have the gift of giving. Sweet. It's like, no. Again, spiritual gifts are usually things that every Christian is called to do, but when you do it with a spiritual gift, it's just hyper-fruitful. And so one of the ways you can learn what your gift is is just to serve in all kinds of ways, both where you think you might be gifted and also just in ways where you're needed. Because again, Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And Paul, as we'll go into a little bit more next week in 1 Corinthians, after he goes all about the gifts and some really fantastic gifts, the ability to heal and speak in different language and interpret prophetic utterances, at the end of all of it he says, but now I'm going to show you a better way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have faith that can move mountains, he lists off a whole bunch of fantastic results from spiritual gifts. And in every one he says, but if I don't have love, they're worthless. They're worthless. So if we had a church full of people who were like, I have this spiritual gift and I want to activate my gift and use it and had all this vision for how they're going to do it, but no one was volunteering in the nursery, no one was showing up to the home of a shut-in, no one was staying 20 minutes after church to listen to someone who's had a hard weekend to pray for them, Paul, and I think the Holy Spirit and God would say, your obsession with spiritual gifts is, is just useless. It has to come from love and be directed towards love. The gifts have been given to each one of us to love and serve each other. And that's really, really important. Okay, let's end up all the way back at the Avengers. Let's, let's circle back. One of the thematic threads that weaves through almost every Avengers movie or, or any other sub-movies, I, think, I forget how many there are. How many, Lauren, like 18 or 19 or something like that? It's a huge amount 
In almost all the movies, there's this turning point in the story. And it's a point where the individual realizes they've been given a superpower or they have access to one. And now they face a choice. They can sit on their hands and kind of say, this is too much. I don't want this responsibility. I understand where this is going to take me. I understand the sacrifices that are being asked of me. Nope, I'm just going to try and continue on, continuing on. I'm just going to pretend I don't know any of this and just live into the status quo. Or they're tempted to say, wow, I've got access to this power. And they begin fantasizing about all the ways they can use it to leverage themselves, to make a name for themselves, to make themselves stand out and to be counted as someone great and important and heroic and super. Not to serve the agenda of the team, which is to serve and protect, but for their own agenda. Or the third choice is the realization that they can use their power to help bring rescue and deliverance to other people. And the word for that in the Bible is salvation. And that's the three choices every Christian has. Sit on your hands, keep on keeping on, ignore this. Look at your spiritual gift and have it turn inward and say, is there a way that I can leverage this for my own agenda? Or to come under the weight of responsibility and have a humble response that says, God, I don't know if I'm up for this challenge. Help me, Holy Spirit. But I'm going to figure out how to use this gift to bring rescue to other people. I'm going to use this to build up this church. I'm going to serve the team. I'm going to serve this larger agenda, an agenda bigger than my own, a mission bigger than my own. So maybe this morning you're sitting here and you realize that is exactly where you are in your life. You're in that part of the story. You're having this realization of, oof, this is not a sermon that you can listen to and just kind of like, okay, I mean, you can pretend it didn't happen. That's kind of your sitting on your hand option. But this sermon is a bit of a turning point. Maybe you've realized in a fresh way that you've been given a gift, that you are designed by God to be a gift to this church as you use your gifts. And what I would say as a pastor is don't turn your back on the team. Please don't turn your back on the team. Don't sit on your hands. Don't turn your gift inward. Begin serving widely and generously because there are people in this church who are hurting and lonely and needy and they need your gift. Some of you are sitting there and in your Christian life as a whole, you are bored, you are under-challenged and it's because you are not seriously trying to use your gift and you're not putting yourself in situations where you have to rely on God, heart, soul, mind and strength and say, I am scared, I am out of my element. I feel like I'm on a team maybe, or I'm surrounded by other Christians who are superheroes, and I'm like that, like that tier B superhero who's not really good enough to be in the Avengers, but they have their own print run of comics for like six or seven runs. But I'm not like the, the real awesome guys. Uh, it's like, God, I need your help. You've got to put yourself in a position by prayer and action where you say, I'm going to, use, I'm going to find out what my gifts are as I love and serve people. And the good news through all this is that you, are, you haven't been given some kind of exaggerated superpower, but you absolutely have been given at least one gift. And so say yes to God's invitation to discover it and to use it, because the more people say yes within this church, the more everybody benefits, the more everybody grows, the more everybody is strengthened, the more everybody is encouraged, and the more everybody is built up. So let me close with a powerful summons to discover and use your gift that comes from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 
Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power in the church forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us to respond to your summons. Help us not to sit in our hands. Help us not to turn our gifts inward. God, we ask and confess, and I certainly confess, there have been times in my life where I have not sought to use my gifts and even my talents and skills in love. I've sought to use them in a way that simply makes my life easier and my life better. And on behalf of those who can align with that truth, God, and that confession, we ask for your forgiveness and ask that you would help us to be faithful stewards of your grace. If we're starting out today, God, and we're intimidated and we, we don't know where to start, Holy Spirit, guide us. Just begin moving us in a direction to serve. Show us our gifts so that we can be a church that is strengthened and unified in the faith, coming to full knowledge of you, leading to your praise and glory, your glory, and this church is strengthening in our neighbor's good. In Jesus' name, amen.